Amen, amen. Hey, good morning. Welcome to The Grove. If this is your first time with us, or maybe you're a friend or family of someone today, we're so glad that you are with us on this third Sunday in Advent. My name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is so good for us to get together. I don't know if you feel this way. Maybe it's just kind of one of those things when you're a pastor, but I love the Christmas season. I love the Christmas season. Uh, maybe the most out of all the seasons in the church calendar because it feels like maybe unintentionally culture is kind of like in swing with where we are trying to be as a church. Like we are trying to celebrate this period of time as we wait for the coming Christ. And, you know, despite the commercialism and all the other stuff, like culture's kind of behind it. There seems to be a festiveness in life. My guess is your homes are decorated. Your lives are populated with all of the celebrating and all of the busy and the go. But kind of it's all oriented towards kind of the same attempt at celebrating. And so our hope in this season is that we could begin to identify really what's at work, kind of the undercurrent of really what makes this season so celebratory. And so for the last couple of weeks, we have been in this sermon series called Miraculous. And the reason that we are talking through this series is because we believe that what was true about the original Christmas story is still true today, that we live in a world that is saturated in the miraculous, and that perhaps by investigating, exploring, and sharing in these original Christmas stories that we can maybe identify ways that we too can rediscover the miraculous that is all around us. Now, one of the challenges as we kind of dig into the miracles in the Christmas story is some of us, it's just kind of a non-starter. We kind of have this kind of enlightened, empirical, scientific mind, and we believe that unless science can verify it. it, it can't be deemed to be true. And so there's just a whole category of scripture for us that's just out. We just, I like the church, I'm, I'm, I'm all for the Jesus thing, but there's just some parts of this story that I can't get behind. And perhaps of all of the parts of the Christmas story that seem kind of the most inaccessible because of the way that science doesn't verify what's happening, is probably the story that we're going to talk about today. In fact, in an interview several years ago, um, somebody was asking Larry King if he could interview anyone in the history of the world, who would he most want to interview? And Larry King said, well, Jesus Christ. And they said, really? And he said, yeah, I'd ask him if he was actually born of a virgin. Now, if you could ask Jesus any question, I don't know, at least for me, his virgin birth or his birth story probably isn't in the top five for me, but for Larry King, it seemed to be. My guess is because there was something, there is something in this story for Larry King, and perhaps for you too, that feels like, yeah, 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 it's all kind of a nice story. That detail, though, I can't, I can't get behind. And so one of the things that we have tried to do is try to define what a miracle might be that might help us better identify it. And perhaps one of the reasons that it's hard to get behind this miracle of the virgin birth is because this is the definition of miracle that maybe you're operating under. It's this surprising but welcome event that cannot be explained by natural or scientific causes, usually attributed to divine agency. If that's your definition of miracle, and you believe we live in a closed system where God does not interact with us on a daily basis, it's hard to get to the place where the virgin birth actually factually happened. 
And so you come with it with a healthy dose of skepticism and maybe a bit of cynicism because of what you know to be true scientifically. But as we talked about last week, not all that can be known is observable. There are limits to what we can know scientifically. In fact, even the claim that it can only be true unless it's scientifically verifiable is in fact a fallacy because that statement can't be scientifically verifiable. And so it's, kind of def- it's an argument that defeats itself, that everything has to be proven by science because ultimately that's not a scientific fact. It's just a different form of a belief statement. And so what we said last week was there's a whole category of experiential that helps us better identify the miraculous. And this is the definition we talked about last week. A miracle, especially as we see it happen in Scripture, has a different understanding of how the world works. The world is not a closed system that God has to enter to act upon. It's an open system. It's a system where God is always active and God is always present. And so miracles are not this moment where God violates the rules of the universe, but it's an opportunity for us to identify a work of God that points to the presence of God. And so ultimately, what it comes down to is what is your understanding of the world and how it works and God's place in all of it. And if we were really to kind of dive into some of the philosophical arguments, you'd have to ask yourself at what point, have, if, you, if you find this to be a little hard to grasp, miracles are a little too far-fetched, at what point in this story do you stop believing? Because the very opening Words of scripture are, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And if that statement is true, then everything else is possible. If God has designed all of this, then God is present in all of it, and God can act in and through all of it. Now, as we kind of approach these stories that we might feel a little skeptical about, Tim Keller describes kind of two types of doubt that we might carry. One is an honest doubt, and the other is a kind of a dishonest doubt. Dishonest doubt says that's impossible, that can't be true, period, full stop. Below that statement is a belief that we know all there is to know, and we contain all of the kind of the dynamics of an argument to fully eliminate any possibility of something being true. And of course, none of us possess that kind of knowledge. As smart as you may be, or as smart as your significant other thinks they are, nobody has that much knowledge that they can, without a doubt, say that can't be true. That's a dishonest doubt. It says, no, that's impossible, but doesn't really have the information needed to be able to make that claim in full honesty. Now, the other type of doubt is an honest doubt. It carries a healthy dose of humility, of understanding that I don't have all of the information, but based on the information I do have, I'm, I'm a little skeptical. I'm going to need a little bit more evidence to prove that this is true. I'm going to need do you tell me a little bit more, to see a little bit more. And my guess is many of us experience honest doubt all throughout our lives. Perhaps you've had somebody go on about some story that happened to them in high school, that time that they scored 16 touchdowns in that game. And you're like, okay, we've passed the limits of what seems to be 
reasonable in life. Or maybe you were on a date and they were going on about themselves and you're like, okay, like this feels a little bit too good to be true. Or your kid comes home from school and they've got some crazy story about, you know, how the teacher did some terrible thing and you're like, okay, somewhere in this is a, is a kernel of truth, but the whole thing isn't entirely true. You recognize that there's something that seems to be beyond kind of the, the scope of reason and possibility. Honest doubt is good. Honest doubt is welcomed in a life of faith. And in fact, in the story that we're going to see, Mary carries a healthy dose of honest doubt. She stands before the message that the angel brings her and says, I'm gonna, hang on a second. Based on what I know to be true, I've got some questions. And so if you're here this morning and you have questions, then you'll find that you're no different than Mary. And my guess is that for our time together this morning, as we look into this story of Mary, there is something that we can learn about how she responds to the miraculous that happens right in front of her and ultimately within her. So if you have your Bibles or a phone, turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't want to do that, I'll put it on the screen. We'll do the work for you. But we are in Luke chapter 1, and we are in verse 26. Okay, this is what it says. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph. And the virgin's name was Mary. This is how the story starts. And this angel, he comes to her and he says, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, as we unpack this whole idea and kind of the veneration of Mary that exists in the Catholic Church and other kind of aspects of the Christian faith, one of the things that I think is important to point out is as the story was first heard, and as we recount this story again for the first time, Mary's status of favor in the sight of the Lord was a, a pre-existing kind of condition before she does anything else. So often we think that it's the obedience of Mary, it's the faithfulness of, of Mary, the inclination of Mary to say yes to what God is doing that earns her the status of favored one. But in kind of a surprising twist, what is happening in this moment and what I think the writer of Luke is trying to say is to create a juxtaposition. Because if you look at kind of the birth story of Jesus, what you see is it's juxtaposed with all of the powers that exist in the world at that time. You know, when Caesar was king and Herod was ruler and in this period of time with these political leaders and all of the places where we assume favor and power are bestowed in kind of this backwoods corner of the Near East, we have this Middle Eastern teenage girl. And the angel, the messenger of God, shows up to her and says, Greetings, favored one. And so as we recount this story, this isn't something that happens to somebody that can't happen to anybody else. Well, I mean, the fact that you give birth to the Messiah. Outside of that fact, being a favored one of God is something that I think the writer of this gospel is trying to say, hey, if it's true for her, it's true for all of us. It's not con conditional upon you agreeing to or your faithfulness or 
The favor of God is a gift that is extended to even someone like her. And so he says, greetings, favor one, the Lord is with you. And as a 14-year-old Middle Eastern girl in the small backwoods corner of the world would feel, she was troubled. Like, what, what do you mean me? Things like this don't happen to people like me. We're starting to venture into the world of highly improbable, teetering on impossible. And I think part of this is the point of the story that Luke is trying to share with us. Like, there are opportunities for the miraculous, for the encounter and the work of God in the midst of the most unlikely situations, including us. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And to the news that you are giving birth to the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, Mary asks a really honest question. How can this be? How can this be since I'm a virgin? How can this be? There are all of these things that seem to indicate that this isn't likely, that this isn't probable, and that this is borderline impossible. God is trying to do something in and through Mary, and Mary's honest response is doubt. How can this be? My question, I wonder, is how many times has God wanted to do something in us and through us and in our lives? And we brush it off. We ignore the nudge. We dismiss that sense, that pull, that call, because we have a valid doubt as to why this would be true for us. How can this be? I'm not supposed to start that. I'm not supposed to step up into this moment. I'm not supposed to change careers or reach out to that person who I've been thinking about for two months straight and I don't know why their name is still in my brain. How could this be? For many of us, it's not the absence of the miraculous around us. It's the absence of the awareness. We don't have the eyes. We're not paying attention. We have a mind and a heart filled with doubt and we dismiss the possibility because, how could, not me, maybe them, they're better, or maybe the trained professional, or maybe the, or the, we have a long list of reasons why we are disqualified from service. Mary does too. She says, but how can this be since I'm a virgin? Not only are there perhaps some personal limitations, but there are some scientific limitations, some Biological limitations. If you don't get that, ask your mom on the way home. She'll explain it to you. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit, and this is how. And the how for Mary is the how for us. And so don't miss this. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary, God wants to do something in you and through you that will forever change the world. But how can this be? Well, 
It's not through you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, and he will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. For nothing will be impossible with God. In the midst of Mary's very honest doubt, the angel reminds her that with God nothing is impossible. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, all of this will be made so. It says, yes, there are limitations to what you know, and that, yes, there are limitations to what you physically or emotionally or mentally can do. You are finite, Mary. Your knowledge is finite. But the God that designed this world, is present in this world, and is at work in this world is infinite. And so through God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you, all of this All of this, all of this is possible. Mary's response to this pretty strong argument from the angel, what does she say? She says, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. What I think is noticeable, noteworthy about some of the things that Mary says in this story is not the fact that Mary gives birth to Jesus. Yes, that's incredible. But that's attributable to the Holy Spirit. That's nothing that Mary does. But it's the movement that Mary makes from how can it be to let it be. God, how can it be? I don't understand, God. How can it be to let it be according to your word? And so I wonder for us today, What's that nudge? What's that message that the Holy Spirit has been trying to leave before you? What is that sense of calling, that sense of invitation to play a part in this larger story of the way that God is at work in the world? What does that nudge look like? What does it sound like to you? And are you responding to it with this how can it be? What does it look like to move to a place of acceptance and, all right, Lord, let it be? This was my story drawn out over like a 10-year period. So I've shared this in parts with you all before, but you know, my call to ministry was totally unexpected. I was not the kid that grew up going, you know what, one day I want to be a pastor. That was not it at all. I wanted to be a lawyer, and so some could argue that's like the opposite of wanting to be a pastor. I say this because like per capita we have more lawyers in this church than like any other church in Dallas. So it's said with a lot of love. But... No plan to be a pastor. And then after kind of a pretty serious car accident, I find myself in a church and in this moment in time where truly something unexplainable happens, I find myself kind of being called down to the front of the church and I'm prayed over and in that moment my call is announced before this whole congregation of people, none of them who I knew or had a relationship with. That was kind of the initial message. And I promise you, I asked, how can it be? How can it be? How can it be? I mean, come on, God, if you knew me, you'd know that you, not me, somebody else. There's so many other people more qualified to do this. For the next 
seven years, I wrestled with this how can it be question. That question, how can it be, caused me to drop out of seminary. Because I wasn't sure. It's like, God, I don't, I don't see within myself, within the understanding that I have in my mind about my abilities, about my innate goodness, that I would ever be called or qualified to do what you were asking me to do. And the language sounded different. But the message was the same. Seven years into this journey, God tells me, it's not about you. It's about the way that I will use you. The way that you will allow the Holy Spirit to guide and to lead. If it was up to Stephen's own abilities, this would be dead on arrival. That's not the message of Christmas. That's not the message that I've lived. It's not what's possible for each of you. Yes, the how can it be questions are real. But the answer is through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so my response was, okay, God, if this is you, open the doors and I'll walk through them. It was a let it be, according to your word. That was literally the prayer that I prayed. All right, God, if this is you, open the doors and I'll walk through them. I don't know where this is going to take me. I don't know what this is going to look like. In like two and a half years from that prayer, I was graduated from seminary, ordained, and starting the grove. God is my witness. It was never the plan. It was never how I thought my life was going to go. And the prayer that I continually try to pray is, okay, God, let it be according to your word. The hardest thing for me to do is to get out of the way. I get in the way a lot. Because I'm asking the question, how can it be? And let me try and let me take control and let me... I think many times, at least in my life, God's waiting for me to get out of the way and to say, okay, God, let it be according to your word. And then to leave space for the Holy Spirit to work. I know that's true about my work as a pastor. I know that's true about my ability to lead this church is how do I get out of the way? And so what I know is true for me is true for you. We all have this nudge, this call. It may not be to ordain ministry, but it is to participate in the work that God's doing, to use your life for something greater, to play a part in the story that God is telling in the history of the world. There's a messenger visiting all of us. And sometimes it's a still, quiet whisper that we dismiss away with doubt, with skepticism or cynicism. No, that can't be. That's not true. How can it be with me, God? But my prayer for us is what would happen if we begin to leave open the possibility for the miraculous? Not that the laws of science and nature would be suspended, but that we'd be able to see a sign that points to the work that God's doing and the way that God is present here in this world and here in your life. And that we'd have the courage to say, okay, God, let it be. For some of you, that might mean taking a step out of just regular attendance on a Sunday morning. It might mean, okay, God, I'm gonna step up into leadership in some way. I'm gonna lead a Bible study or a small group. Or you know what, God, for me and my family, we're going to make church a greater priority this year. We're going to come. 
Not just when we feel like it, but we're going to commit to be here, to be a part of this community. For others of you, maybe that call is somewhere in your professional life. Maybe it's a way that your life is supposed to be used to witness and to share this message with other people. Maybe there's somebody on your street, family member, a friend here like, I need to invite them to church. I need to just shoot the text, send the email, and just say, hey, would you you come sit with me on Sunday? Or we're doing this cool thing on Christmas Eve. I don't know if you want to bring your family. But what if we started to open ourselves up to the possibility of the way that God is inviting all of us to participate in what God is doing in the world? It is happening all around us. And may we have the courage to say in response, let it be. Let me pray for our time together this morning. God, in so many ways, we stand in the confidence of what we know and experience, in the confidence of our abilities and our own intelligence. But God, when we stand in your presence, all of that pales in comparison. God, we are finite and you are infinite. God, help us to recognize that we are not the limits of all that is understandable and all that is knowable. So God, help us to lean into what you might be doing in our life, the places you might be calling us to be and do according to your will. God, inspire us to share this message with others, to nudge them and encourage them to do the same. And as a community of people, God, help us to live into the fullness of who you were calling us to be as servants of your son. God, we are grateful for the way that you are present in our life, the ways that you are working in our life. And God, make room and space for your Holy Spirit to move and work in our lives. God, this is our prayer. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.